Evening. All right, I know it's summer and it's hot outside, but that was very weak. Well, sure good to be here. I, good evening. There we go. I just thought I'd try. Give you a second chance. God's a God of second chances. And so we find ourselves in Hosea chapter 10 uh, this evening. We remember, and for some of those of you who are joining us here even uh, just tonight, the Lord is in the book of Hosea confronting the northern kingdom of Israel with her unfaithfulness and her uh, spiritual adultery and her idolatry and uh, principally in the, uh, her unfaithfulness in the realm of idolatry and then her alliances with the foreign nations around uh, her and uh, her disobedience to uh, God's Word. And the Lord has laid out in earlier chapters His charges against her, all of the specific sins that she's committed against Him. And uh, now we're in that section of uh, the book, chapters 9 and 10, where he uh, lays out now the consequences of uh, their sin and their rebellion. And there are always consequences to sin uh, and rebellion. And so uh, here in chapter 10, he uh, continues that, uh, that thought. He declares that Israel empties his vine, and he brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars, uh, according to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his uh, sacred pillars. Their heart is divided, now they are held guilty. He, speaking of God, will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. And so they began to ascribe all of their prosperity, all of their rich harvests, the, the wealth of the nation to the idols that they were following rather than to God. And God wasn't receiving the the acknowledgement that he deserves everything that we have, we owe uh, to God. And that's one of the great things about um, offerings as a part of uh, ties and offerings with the morning services is just to simply acknowledge that to, uh, to God. And, uh, but uh, so because they're, uh, they are uh, ascribing uh, to their idols the, the fact that all, all of their wealth and all God knows He has to step in now and He has to destroy and will destroy their idols. So they will once again recognize that He is the one that is providing to them. And of course, this is the kind of thing that happens even within the Christian life where someone will get off base. They'll begin to ascribe all of their wealth and their prosperity and success and popularity or whatever it might be to their own talent, to their own education, to their own gifting or their own uh, worship of something in the world, and uh, even if that's themselves, and then the Lord has to bring all of it uh, crashing down. He has to destroy it uh, so that we will recognize that, no, He is the source of all of these things within our lives. Because if He continues to bless us in the midst of idolatry, then all it does is continue, uh, it, it encourages us to continue in that idolatry. So he cause, always causes it to be a, a crash and burn for our own good. And uh, so he promised here that he would break all of this down and, and uh, their altars and he will ruin their sacred pillars. And through the years I've known many, many people to go into uh, a backslide and a backslide sometimes doesn't look bad at all. Um, it can be just simply taking on the attitudes and the priorities of a, a capitalistic society, and materialism begin to uh, 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 be the dominant thing within a person's life, and God gets crowded out of the top spot. This becomes the most important thing in their life, the most important priority in terms of time and, and their prestige and their witness and all of these things. And then I, I can't tell you, it's uh, uh, more than one hand in the course of 35-plus uh, years of men uh, that I've uh, known that have been millionaires and have lost all of it uh, because of something that has happened in their life as they uh, went into this kind of a place uh, jeopardizing their soul, their Christian witness, and boom, brought right down to the bottom. And, uh, and God loved them enough to do that. And thankfully, 
they, they knew that, though the collapse was uh, significant. And so in uh, uh, verse 3, God confronts them by, with their, uh, com- the fact that they're completely rebellious. For now they say, speaking of uh, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, we have no king. And the idea here is, is that once they're defeated by the Assyrians and the king is toppled as well as the nation, the recognition that we have lost our sovereignty. We are no longer in control of our destiny as a nation or as a people. Uh, we have thrown that away, and now that is in the hands of the Assyrians. And, uh, and, and so uh, we, uh, we have no king, and then they recognize the reason for it, or they will when they are taken into captivity, because we did not uh, fear the Lord. I don't know how popular the fear of the Lord is anymore, uh, but it is an important, um, it is a, an important characteristic in the Christian life uh, for protection from sin. I know God loves me. I know He is for me but I fear Him as well. And uh, I respect Him, I reverence Him, but I know never to force Him to choose between His Word and His promises and the life that I'm living. And uh, because He will always choose His Word, and so I, I need to be on the right side of it. And so it puts a fear in me of being on the wrong side of it. Maybe you don't need that, but I'm a knucklehead. And, and this plays in very, very importantly in, in my Christian life, they had lost that. And uh, the fact that they were living the way that they were living was uh, an evidence that they didn't have the fear of God. Uh, and uh, as for a king, uh, what would he do for us? They have spoken words swearing falsely in making a, a covenant, thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows uh, of the field. And uh, so he talks here about the uh, uh, swearing falsely. What could the king do for us now? And it's talking about how the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, and Judah was doing it as well, but the northern kingdom of Israel was doing it it, to a greater degree. And they were uh, trying to enter into treaties with Assyria, into treaties with Egypt in order to uh, find a, an alliance that would give them greater outward security uh, as a nation in kind of a tumultuous world. And because they had uh, walked away from God, their nation was rotting from within morally and spiritually, and, uh, and that never stays just within the individual. That never stays just within the religious system of, uh, of the nation. And so they would take and... Um, uh, uh, and try and uh, uh, negotiate with Assyria. Um, but if they could negotiate something better with Egypt, then they would betray what it was that they were speaking. It's politics, the art of compromise. Um, but Israel was different from the rest of the world. Uh, that was to be a the- theocracy. They didn't need to do all these shenanigans to secure their future. Just walk with God, obey God, and they would have been perfectly fine. But here we see something that's interesting, and I think it's very, very contemporary. You have the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, and what they've done is is they have now left any sense of ultimate truth, of any uh, ultimate definitions of right and wrong. They left God's definitions of right and wrong. And once you won't accept God's definitions of right and wrong, you certainly aren't going to accept anybody else's. I mean, if that doesn't carry any weight, then what definitions of right and wrong are we going to give any weight to in our lives? Now you head into chaos. And so once you're a nation that no longer believes in right and wrong, no longer operates out of principle, and, uh, and, and now does what is convenient, most convenient for itself, rather than what is right, that's going to find its way into your foreign policy. And then your name as a nation is going to become anathema because the whole world is going to see on display one day that those people cannot be trusted to keep their word. They play the political game, but there is no principle behind their assurances. 
And then what happens is a nation's name becomes hemlock. Hemlock was a poisonous plant in the ancient world, and that nation and its name becomes a poison to all of the nations uh, uh, of the world and the nations around it. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't need to think I need to um, take this down into our um, present headlines uh, for uh, application. But the consequences of moving away from God are not only far-reaching, they are all-reaching into an individual's life and into a nation's life and into the entire world. The inhabitants of Samaria, speaking of the northern kingdom, uh, fear because of the calf uh, of Beth-Avon. And we remember earlier that God is now calling Bethel, which means house of God, uh, he's calling it now Beth-Avon, the house of wickedness, because it was in the city of Bethel that the northern kingdom of, uh, uh, of Israel had set up one of the two golden calves that uh, constituted the, the uh, center of their idolatry. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon, for its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. The idol shall be taken to Assyria, and uh, as a present for King Jareb there, Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. So God speaks of the fact when this great uh, calf is going to be taken captive by the Assyrians, this great idol that had been uh, two, one of the two greatest idols within the land would be taken captive as, as a trophy by the Assyrian uh, uh, king. And, uh, and, and then you see the reaction of the… Well, number one, uh, number one lesson again is uh, never follow a god that can be taken captive. There goes my God. He's on the back of a, on the back of something they haul cars with. He's just heading right out of town, headed to Assyria. What was I thinking? Could just be taken away that easy. And uh, and then and you think about the absolute illogic of worshiping something that can be stolen that is so weak, so feeble, such a fabrication in man's minds that it can't even protect itself from being uh, taken captive, and yet we worship it, or the world has a tendency to do that. And, and if that isn't enough, when the calf was taken, notice the emotional response of the people and the priests there in verse 5, for its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it because uh, its glory has departed from it. That's the emotional response that the people of God, not pagans, not the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Egyptians, but the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is the emotional response that they had for when their idol was taken away from them. What do you think w will happen one day in, uh, uh, God willing, if it happens, uh, and we certainly are praying for that, um, if uh, the Supreme Court rules in a way in which Roe v. Wade is overturned within our country, uh, you haven't even heard shrieking and what will happen in this nation by people that uh, have made this an idol within their lives when it's taken away. Or you talk about uh, 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 the uh, drugs being taken away or outlawed as, as, as there's been so much that's been uh, uh, legalized now. Again, a stroke of brilliance to legalize uh, marijuana. Uh, in, in this state. And then Oregon has decriminalized all drug use, as long as you're carrying a, a significantly small uh, enough amount of that. So I, I, I removed all of my investments in, uh, in Oregon. 
which didn't even require a phone call uh, because I don't have any investments in any, any, of, uh, any of those things. Or pornography. Imagine if any of these things that are idols within our country were pulled away and the shrieking and mourning that would occur. And again, just because we don't have an idol, a physical idol, associated with these sins doesn't mean it's not idolatry. Uh, it is. There's nothing new uh, under the sun. And as for Samaria, verse 7, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. And so the bringing down of the king of Israel in the ancient world, the kings like to think that they were uh, and, and oftentimes it's the imagery of the Old Testament that they are a mighty oak or that they are like the cedars of Lebanon. And whatever the king, and he surely he thinks he's like, I am the cedar of Lebanon. And, uh, and God says, uh, no, you're a twig. And uh, bringing you down will require no effort uh, 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 at all, it'll be like a twig on the water. I hope every one of us in this room has had, as a part of our childhood, been somewhere where it's rained very, very heavily and you're a kid and the water is running in some culvert or in some gutter where you throw something into the water, maybe make a little boat or a leaf or something, and then you watch it be carried down the stream and you run far ahead to see how far it's, it's going to come. And, uh, and uh, uh, it's the simple pleasures in life, I mean, that, that are part of a childhood. And, uh, but one thing you realize is that little piece of wood that you put in there, and, and it has no control over where it's going. It is completely caught with the, with the current. And God said, uh, this is how effortless it's going to be to deal with her king uh, however high his self-esteem. And also the high places of uh, Avon, uh, the sin of uh, Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on the altars. God said, I'm going to destroy the altars. I'm going to destroy the sin. He's faithful to do that. And I'm going to displace my people from this land until thorns and thistles grow over those altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills fall on us. And um, this is the reaction of the population of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel when the Assyrians ultimately would conquer, um, uh, conquer the northern kingdom. Now, I know the, if you ever run into an Assyrian person today, they're the gentlest, nicest people in the whole world. Uh, but they weren't always that, that way. Um, I, uh, in the ancient world, the Assyrians, when they would conquer some place, they would conquer it in a way that would ca uh, cause uh, great fear to be placed in all of the nations that they were then intending upon uh, conquering. Uh, there's records of them lopping off the heads of every single pe person in a city that, um, uh, that they conquered and then piling them in great stacks at the gate of the city so word would then go out, don't resist the Assyrians. They would take and flay the skin off of the people and then put uh, kind of wallpaper the walls of the city with the skin. And so uh, this would have been uh, to be conquered by the Assyrians isn't just, oh well, you know, they had a, a skirmish or two and then they signed the treaty and surrendered. No, it, the, the, the thing that would produce the greatest fear in someone's heart is that you would be conquered and de be defenseless before uh, uh, the uh, Assyrians. Now today I know they're putty tats. Uh, but um, uh, not back then. And so here is the day coming when the inhabitants of the northern kingdom would prefer death to being taken captive uh, by the Assyrians, calling out on the mountains to kill them or the hills before they, to fall on them before they uh, uh, ended up in the hands uh, of of uh, the Assyrians. And, O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. Uh, there they stood, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity. 
did, uh, uh, did not uh, overtake them when it is my desire, I will chasten them. Peoples will be gathered against them then, uh, when I bind them for their two transgressions. And their two transgressions are probably idolatry and uh, their treaties with the, uh, with the other nations done in violation of God's glory and His promises uh, for them. He brings up Gibeah again in one of the, again, the, one of the absolute lo- top three, top five lowest uh, points in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We mentioned it last week when the Levite's concubine was gang-raped by an entire city uh, of Benjamites, children of Israel, and then uh, 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 died as a result of the experience, gang-raped all night long, died, and then the other 11 tribes rose up to bring judgment against uh, Benjamin and to give us some kind of a sense for how uh, low uh, the northern kingdom of Israel has fallen, God likens them to that period in their history. So God isn't even showing us how awful uh, 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 life is there at that time. And so He warns them, you know, back in the lowest po- one of the lowest points in your history, it was just one tribe out of the twelve that was doing this kind of stuff. Now it's 12 tribes out of 12. I don't even have a a remnant within the northern uh, kingdom of Israel to bring judgment against those that are disobedient. I'm going to have to use foreign nations to do what I did with Benjamin long ago and uh, in order to bring uh, that judgment upon them. But judgment would come and he would use the Assyrians. Ephraim is a trained uh, heifer. I don't know what that means, but I don't, I don't notice any. When I go buy a card for my wife, I notice there are no trained heifer cards uh, at all. But in the, in the Old Testament, uh, it was a reference to a good thing. Uh, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh uh, grain. Now, if you're going to be a heifer... It better be a person. I I don't believe in reincarnation, so I'm not saying you have a choice. But if you are going to be a beast of burden in this way, the choice job that you could get would be to be a heifer that uh, pulled kind of the threshing uh, uh, instrument over the grain Uh, When the grain had been brought in, the wheat had been brought in, the weight would be then pulled over them to separate the chaff from the wheat. And one of the reasons that was a choice job was because God, in the law of Moses, indicating even His concern for uh, animals, uh, and uh, He declared that when, when that animal is used then for the threshing of the grain, you were not to muzzle it. It was to eat what it wanted to eat on the floor of the threshing floor. And so that was, a, that was a good, good place to be. And God says to the northern kingdom of Israel, that's what you have been. But you've been that because of me. You've had this choice place. You've had enough to eat. And enough to eat in human history is one of the great blessings in human history. You've been prosperous. You've been well cared for because I've given you this place. And, um, but speaking then of the judgment that is to come, but I harnessed her fair neck, and I will make Ephraim pull a plow, and Judah shall plow, Jacob shall break his clods. And so God said, I'm going to move you outside uh, from this, this um, trained heifer who is threshing the grain. I'm going to put a plow on you and take you out into the hard work so uh, you remember uh, how blessed it is to be privileged uh, by me and you don't use those privileges uh, to turn against me. And then here in verse 12, it's just, (laughs) you know, every time you're just looking for some kind of a ray of, of light in the midst of all of this, And there's plenty of that, actually, in the book of Hosea. Here, God gives uh, hope to the nation. He gives them the remedy. Now, you just stop. Pretend you don't know verse 12 at all. Maybe you don't. Don't read it yet. Uh, 
But here's this description of the northern kingdom of Israel that, I'm, that uh, God is giving to us here. And you think to yourself, what in the world would God say to a backslider who is backslidden to this degree? Uh, would He call them to, for five years of counseling? Uh, would He call them to self-flagellate themselves? I mean, what would God say to a person who is this deep in a backslide? And this is what He says. He said, so for your self-righteousness, number one, return back to what is right and, a bit, and begin to obey that once again. Sow to yourself in righteousness, reap in mercy. Go back to righteousness. Go back to God's commandments, His definitions of right and wrong. Do those things. Do it with the confidence that if we do that, God will meet us with mercy. And then He said, break up your fallow ground. Fallow ground was hard ground. Break up the hardness of your heart, the hardness of your life as a result of, uh, of sin, because it's time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness upon you. And so, uh, do righteousness, do it with a confidence, break up the hardness of your heart, and, and return to seeking the Lord, and do it until He blesses you once again. He rains righteousness upon you. And that's how simple it is. Repentance, is, uh, uh, repentance occurs in an instant. And then you see the fruit of repentance afterwards. But repentance is just have a, a change of mind uh, that results in a change of direction in my life. And I say, well, how did I get on this path? Well, we all know how we got on those paths. But how did I get on this path and, and in this m mess that I'm in, and then just like uh, the younger son and the prodigal, uh, 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 prodigal sons, uh, we come to our, uh, 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 to our uh, senses on things, and, and now here I want to turn uh, back to the Lord. And, and, uh, and this is how easy it is to do. Repentance uh, can occur in a second. No matter how deep my backslide is tonight, no matter what I am involved in, that maybe even only God knows. Now, it, it, I, I love the fact that he says, now, so to your self-righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, uh, for it's time to seek the Lord. And then he, I like that word, till, till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Do it until God's blessings are poured back out on, on your life. As, as, as a result of this. There's a, there's a man that I love dearly in life, and he and I were, uh, and I've had many conversations since then uh, in, in the same vein, uh, uh, but uh, never with, with a man that means this much to me. And he had backslidden, and he had really backslidden. And, uh, and he came back to the Lord, and in coming back, Boom, it's like he never left. God just met him right there. Immediately, everything is restored to him. And, uh, but then another backslide, maybe another backslide. And then he mentioned that the last time that he came back to the Lord, that didn't come back to him immediately. Uh, there was a time in which he did these things before all of those blessings and the reigning of righteousness upon him occurred in order that he might think twice about how precious these things are and not just to assume, but they did return. They will always return uh, if we will turn back to God in this way and, uh, and he will uh, come and rain righteousness on you. Nobody is in the impossible category. Nobody's beyond hope because of, uh, of the, the beauty of the heart of God for us. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. I mean, you, you reap what you sow. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Uh, and here's why. Because you have trusted in your own way, your own wisdom, in the, uh, in the multitude of your mighty men. So you think about a nation 
hypothetically, uh, that has uh, abandoned God's definitions of right and wrong, uh, abandoned God, at least on a national kind of level, and uh, now they are uh, living on their own wisdom, their confidence is in their own wisdom and ideas, and in their military. And uh, that's Israel. That's Israel. And those things can collapse uh, in, uh, in a moment, and that's the very place that uh, Israel was in, and we don't want to find ourselves in uh, individually as a Christian and, and not as a nation. Therefore, tumult shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be uh, plunders, uh, plundered. As shall man plundered uh, Beth Arbel in the day of the battle, a mother uh, uh, dashed in pieces upon her children. The brutality of that battle we don't know anything historically about Shalman and his uh, plundering of Beth Arbel, uh, but uh, obviously uh, Hosea's audience did. But here he talks about all of the fortresses, the absolute military strongholds of the northern kingdom. All of them uh, will, would be plundered. Righteousness is also nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness, uh, at dawn the king of Israel shall be uh, cut off utterly. And so all of it uh, would happen. And then we go into chapter 11, and it's a beautiful chapter. It begins kind of a, a final section of, uh, of the book, and he kind of concludes his charges against them, but, uh, but it moves toward uh, 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 hope as, uh, as well. And so God's been forced to judge his people, but he, he wants to, them to know that he's not, it doesn't mean he's given up on them. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So imagine you as a parent, if you're a parent, and if you aren't a parent, then you can imagine it easy enough. Uh, imagine you are a parent, and you pull out an old photo album of your children, and then you start to go through them, and the child is backslidden, is badly, badly, badly backslidden. And you go back and you pull out the album, and you start to look at when they were a child. Here's the picture when they came home from the hospital. Here's the picture of, you know, their first steps and all of these kind of things. And you remember when everything was, was so different from what it is now and uh, what that would do to a parent's heart. And God is essentially going to be doing the same thing here uh, as He unfolds a little bit about their history. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and, so, uh, and out of Egypt I called my son. Speaking about God, uh, the exodus of bringing the nation of Israel uh, out of the, uh, the Egypt, uh, out of the captivity in Egypt. They went in numbering about 70 people. They came out numbering somewhere around 3 million. They went, went from being kind of a, a clan, a large clan in the ancient world, to now being a nation. And so he kind of put them in a womb there in Egypt so that that could happen. They would have the numbers that they would need to then occupy the promised land. And uh, so he, they come out as a son to him, uh, and as they called them, so they went out from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and uh, burned incense to carved images. And so even when God brought them out of Egypt, uh, Hosea says they brought all of their gods with them. They were one thing outwardly, but there was a lot of idolatry that continued among the people. They continued to... Um, they uh, had an outward respect for God, an, uh, an outward relationship with God, uh, but hidden away in their tents, they worshipped all of these gods of Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. This is a type of the Christian who, for all outward appearances, is a worshiper of God, but you get them home behind closed doors, and then all of the other gods come out as if God can't see uh, all of this going on. And that's where, that's where they were. So they kind of they knew God as a redeemer. He had redeemed them from Egypt, but they didn't know Him yet as Lord. And, Lord, and the Lord knows how to bring us from uh, merely knowing Him as a Savior to also making Him the Lord of our life. And for some of us, it requires quite a crisis 
uh, for that to occur, but He loves us enough to do that. As He's continuing now, moving from the pictures related to birth, He goes to the pictures that have to do with Ephraim walking and, and taking them. Uh, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them uh, by their arms. So one of the, the most tender, beautiful pictures you'll ever see in life is to watch a father take his, his child by the hands and uh, by the arms and then help that child to walk, to see such strength coming alongside such weakness. It's a beautiful picture. And God had done that for the nation, but they did not know that I healed them. And of course, anytime you're going to teach a child how to walk, what's going to happen? Oh, the next thing you know, the very next day they're on a bike. No, they're going to fall and they're going to fall and they're going to get owies and all of this. And so what does this father do? They begin to make progress. They begin to learn how to walk. It's something that's new to them, learning to walk with God. They're going to slip. They're going to fall. The Father comes alongside as God does with us, and He picks us up, and He helps us to continue to move forward. And that's what He had done with the nation of Israel. We remember it on our own uh, Christian lives as well. And I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck, I stooped down and I fed them. And so he uses the imagery uh, of the agrarian life of this animal that has come in from plowing all day long and uh, comes in, and then the master takes that yoke off of, off of the animal and then stoops and uh, feeds them. I, I, I always like the word uh, stooped associated with God. I don't know how far down he had to stoop to save you, but I know he had to stoop way down to save me. And his willing to condescend in the way that he did and he does to save any of us is beautiful. And how he cared for them, how he's cared for us. And he shall not return to uh, the land uh, of Israel, uh, or the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be uh, his king. So uh, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel refused to repent. They, they were in the middle here of trying to get an alliance with Egypt. If there's trouble here, we'll go to Egypt. Egypt ours alliance. And God says, alliance, alliance. He didn't really say that. I just said that. But the point, he's saying, I don't care what you've got contracted with Egypt. You're going to Assyria. I'm in control of the situation because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash uh, in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding uh, from me. So this is a, this is a really... Um, uh, stubborn uh, uh, backsliding that's going on here. They're bent on backsliding from me, though they call uh, to the Most High, uh, none at all exalt Him. So uh, they were outwardly expressing their love for the Lord, and, uh, but backslidden in heart. And God said, I mean, if you don't... Uh, that's, that's a funny... The thing about hypocrisy... Uh, and acting and pretending, being one thing outwardly to God, outwardly to others, being something else uh, different inwardly, it's to live a lie, and then we begin to, conf we begin to think that um, we're getting away with it, that we're convincing people. And uh, very rarely do, uh, do we uh, co uh, convince people with hypocrisy. Sooner or later, our hypocrisy comes out. But you can never, ever... Uh, fool God with hypocrisy, and, uh, and so they call the, to the Most High, uh, but none at all exalt Him. And then look at the patheticness, I mean, in a, in a sanctified sense of, of, of the heart of God here, His compassion toward them as He cries out to them, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? And, and this is this is his heart. How can you do this to me? How can you have done this to my heart? 
How can I give up, uh, 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 give you up in this way? I've mentioned it uh, uh, once or twice through the years, but I remember when I was brand new uh, to coming to Modesto, and Karen and I, we moved from Napa, and so there were uh, certain things that were in a medium-sized California city that weren't really present in a small uh, city in California that were new to us in terms of exposure. So I was driving through Highway Village, uh, headed someplace, and at that time it was a, a rougher part of town. And, uh, and so there was this woman walking through the middle of the street just distraught and an absolute mess. And, um, and I didn't know that many things about people being strung out on drugs or all the different mental illness kind of things that can be going on and all. So I pulled over and I asked her, how can I help you here? And she begins to lay out this entire story about how her whole family has turned their back on her. No one will help her, all of this and everything. And I said, well, why don't you give me your telephone number and I'll call your parents and, and let them know the fix that you're in. So they gave me uh, the telephone. She gave me the telephone number and no cell phones kind of at that time. And so I had to wait to get back to the office and call. And I called. And the parents uh, uh, talked with me, very gracious to me. And they let me know the other side of the story, again, a story I've heard over and over and over again now, uh, having lived for a little while and being a pastor as well. And they said, our daughter and her addictions and her sin and her rebellion and her her history here, we poured and we poured and we poured into her for so many years that we were not going to survive if we did not cut off from knowing the harm that she is doing to herself every day. We cannot, as a parent, know this about our daughter and to then set that kind of a boundary because it hurts the parent far more than it hurts the child when the child is doing this kind of thing in a backslide. And so here is the pain of God as a father in all of this. How can I give you up, uh, Ephraim? You're breaking my heart. How can I hand you over, Israel? When they talk about chastening or discipline and they say, somebody says, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And of course, as a kid, you go, yeah, right. And, uh, and it's not till you become a parent uh, that you realize the truth of it. How can I make you like Adma? How can I uh, set you like uh, Zeboim? And these were two cities that were destroyed at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, giving us a sense again of the sin that was in the land and, and the scope of destruction and, and chastening that would come their way. My heart churns within me. I mean, think about God saying this. They don't care. They don't care about their sin. They don't care about their, the heart of God in the same way that so often a child. I don't care about my sin. I don't care what it does to my parents. And, uh, and yet here is God. I mean, talk about how committed He is, as we've talked on a previous study, to this relationship that we have with Him. And how often we can forget how deeply invested He is in this relationship. Not in word, but in His very heart. And my heart churns within me, the Father says. My sympathy is stirred. And He said, I will not ex execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come uh, with terror. Now, this is a very, very fascinating uh, passage here uh, when God, uh, God declares that when I execute my judgment and my chastening, it is not what I could have done. And, and as hard as that Assyrian uh, leveling of the land and them going into captivity, they deserved far worse than the chastening that the Lord meted out on them. I, I, I have 
I, I would say, of myself without any hesitation at all. Uh, anytime God has taken and chastened me, I deserved far worse than the chastening He meted out to me. He chastened out enough to regain my attention so that I would take this seriously and turn back to Him. But what I deserved, that's an entirely different thing. And every one of us can look at God and His dealings in our lives. And even when He deals with us in the, the greatness of His chastening, and He gets done with it, and you say, if you knew what only He knows and I know, you would know I got off easy. He's gracious, even in His, in his uh, chastening here. And sometimes you'll hear people, they marvel at the patience of God. I marvel at the patience of God, not just with the world, but in my own life. It makes me love Him even more and want to follow Him. And uh, they'll say, boy, uh, you can be thankful the God of the Bible is God and not me. And, and basically all we're saying is what Hosea is saying here, is that we are, if we were in God's shoes, we would be far less gracious in dealing with any situation than how He deals with them. And so, yes, I am very thankful that you are not God. And yes, you are very, very thankful that I am not God. God is far more gracious than we would ever be uh, our, ourselves. And the reason that the Lord does this is you see that last uh, uh, portion there, uh, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. Now here's the reason behind His chastening and His discipline in our lives, is that when He chastens us to get our attention and to secure our repentance, he doesn't want us to come back into a relationship with Him that is one in which we are terrified of Him. There's a fear of Him, but not to be terrified of Him. So a person comes back from a backslide, even a backslide in heart, and the Lord brings us back from that kind of a place, and He could hammer us so hard that it'd be like those rats that they run through the maze and they get zapped any time they go over here, and so they won't go over here. God could do that to any of us. So that it would be like we'd go to move in a certain direction, and there'd, there'd be that conditioning that we wouldn't do that. But He doesn't want a relationship with us based upon terror. What He wants is to work in His chastening in such a way that we repent but we return not to a terror relationship with Him, but we return to a love relationship with Him. All in the ancient world, in the world today, just go to India. I'll save you a flight. You don't need to go there. Uh, all of the Hindu gods, they are terrifying. Uh, in the ancient world, under the, uh, the Romans and the Greeks, the gods that they served, these were gods that terrified their followers in order to keep them in line. And God's saying, I'm not like those gods. I want us, you to be in line, but I want it to come out. I, but what I want with you ultimately is still a love relationship with you where your obedience comes not supremely out of terror, but it comes out of, out of a love for me and how gracious and good I have been uh, to you. And, and it's beautiful, of course, the way that He works, and he, he does that. And they shall walk after the Lord, and he, shall, he will roar like a lion, and when he roars, now talking about uh, the, the future when they would return back into the land after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. So it's, uh, it's uh, well, cute isn't the right word, uh, but it's uh, um, cute in a masculine way, whatever that word would be. So you can uh, put that into your mind. But here God talks about himself as a lion. And, uh, and we have sung of Jesus as the Lion of Judah even here tonight. The interesting thing is that uh, the symbol 
of the Assyrian Empire was a lion. The symbol of the Babylonian Empire was a lion. And God comes in here and He declares that when the day comes and He roars as a lion, then His people will come out of Babylon, come out of their captivity, back into the land. In other words, He is the lion. He's the one that's working here. He used Assyrian Babylon, Babylon as instruments, but they were not in charge of the situation. And when He roars, then His sons will come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt and like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. And so uh, the, uh, the people will come back into the land. He gives that hope to them. There'll be another side of this chastening and this backslide. And, uh, and they will come back. And, and in the imagery here, you will nest in the land once again. Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. And so at that time, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was far along in their apostasy, much farther along than the southern kingdom of Judah. As we've mentioned several times, the southern kingdom of Judah would go into captivity to the Babylonians well over a hundred years after the northern kingdom of, of Israel did to the Assyrians. And so here's an encapsulation of their uh, current condition. And we'll stop there, of course, tonight, and we'll look to finish the book um, next, uh, next week. So if the worship team would come forward, that would be great. And just a chance tonight, any kind of a, of a response uh, so to yourself in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up the fallow ground. And, and if, that's the, if that's what any of us have come here tonight, to be able to hear that and to turn back to God uh, with all of our hearts. And for the rest of us to, uh, to uh, uh, look at this and see the encouragement of God related to uh, His chastening and, what it, uh, and, and even to look back upon our lives and or even the privacy of our own heart and say, Lord, you have been way gentler and kinder and gracious to me than anyone else would have been if they knew the facts about me. So much to celebrate in the grace of God, uh, even in the midst of the heaviness of a book like uh, Hosea. I'm going to ask Mike to lead us in a worship song or two, and then, then we'll close out. As we just take some time to... Uh, settle uh, quietly kind of settle out of the passage in the Bible study this evening